Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season 10, episode 6, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today, we'll be discussing the 2015 gothic romance film, Crimson Peak. It was written and directed by Guillermo del Toro, with Matthew Robbins co-writing the screenplay. It stars Mia Wasikowska, Tom Hiddleston, Jessica Chastain, Charlie Hunnam, and Jim Beaver. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Specific trigger warnings for this episode can be found in the show notes. Okay, are you still here? Great, then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you be so kind as to read the plot summary? Sure. Edith Cushing is an aspiring writer living with her widowed father in Buffalo, New York in 1901. We learn that Edith's mother passed away when she was very young, but visited her as a ghost, beckoning her that when the time comes, beware of Crimson Peak. Edith Edith spends her days transcribing her novels and following the dealings of her father, but one day a baronet by the name of Sir Thomas Sharp comes to America seeking the investment of her father. He's from England, where he resides in a decrepit mansion called Allerdale Hall with his frigid sister, Lucille. Edith is immediately struck by his charm, but her father is not so easily smitten by him. Banished from the Cushing's home, the Sharps begin their retreat back to England, and broken-hearted Edith is soon left orphaned when her father is mysteriously murdered. Completely alone, Edith accepts Thomas's marriage proposal and arrives as the new bride of Allerdale Hall, where she finds out too late is nicknamed Crimson Peak. Ah! <laughs> will she join her father in death, or will Edith reveal the shadowy mysteries that surround her new home? Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> Thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. You are welcome. Okay, let's get into the production of this film. So according to Mike Fleming Jr., Guillermo del Toro and his frequent frequent screenplay collaborator, Matthew Robbins, wrote the spec script for Crimson Peak in 2006, around the time del Toro's film Pan's Labyrinth was released. So we talked a bit about what a spec script is in our episode about the movie Near Dark, But just as a reminder, a spec script is a script written without the promise of purchase or production. So Crimson Peak was eventually sold to Universal Studios not long after the spec script was finished, with Del Toro in the director's chair. But after opportunities to direct Hellboy 2 and the infamous never-filmed Hobbit movies... 
Uh, Del Toro decided to hire someone else to direct Crimson Peak. However, he apparently could not find anyone suitable to replace himself. (laughs) (laughs) If you want something done right, you gotta do it yourself. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) After a few years, Universal allowed Legendary Pictures the rights to Crimson Peak, and Del Toro was back to directing. Now, according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, Del Toro called the film a ghost story and gothic romance. He described it as a very set-oriented, classical, but at the same time modern take on the ghost story, and said that it it would allow him to play with the genre's conventions while subverting their rules. He stated, quote, I think people are getting used to horror subjects done as found footage or B-value budgets. I wanted this to feel like a throwback, unquote. And Del Toro wanted the film to honor the grand dames of the haunted house genre, namely Robert Wise's The Haunting and Jack Clayton's The Innocents. So we've talked about the haunting, right? We 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 have an episode on that. We don't have an episode on the innocence, which is actually one of my favorite films of all time. Um, so maybe one day. But I do suggest checking out both those films and checking out our episode on the haunting. Listen, Benedict Cumberbatch and Emma oh. Stone were originally cast to be in this film. Oh no. No, exactly. No. Both very good actors. <laughs> not right for these roles at all correct correct both dropped out of the production thankfully um so the film was actually titled haunted peak (laughs) while under production no not good no (laughs) terrible terrible name so i'm glad that changed too (laughs) same yeah Okay, so I gotta say the innocence the movie and the haunting the movie are far from the only inspirations for this film this truly has got to be the greatest homage to gothic horror and gothic romance i've ever seen in my entire life and i feel like you either love it or hate it because of that Mm -hmm. and i saw how some reviewers who are familiar with the gothic really were unimpressed uh by this film because they had quote-unquote seen it before you know like there's this one review where the author said that the tea poisoning is like straight out of hitchcock's thriller movie notorious in which spoiler alert for an 80 year old movie uh the main heroine is slowly poisoned with coffee by her nefarious husband and his mother and We'll reference many other movies and the gothic inspirations later on, but if I feel like if one of your complaints of this film is, I've seen this before, all I have to say is yes, and that's the point. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It is an homage to these films (laughs) on Mm -hmm. purpose. Okay, so Crimson Peak was filmed in Canada, mostly in Toronto, and in Sound Studios, so not actually in Buffalo, New York, which is where I live currently, which is kind of disappointing, but (laughs) it's close. (laughs) 
According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, Crimson Peak held its world premiere at Fantastic Fest in Austin, Texas on September 25th, 2015, with Del Toro in attendance, and was held as a quote-unquote secret screening. The film was also screened on September 28th in Paris, France. The film then premiered in Lincoln Square in New York on October 14th, 2015. Crimson Peak was released theatrically in the United States on October 16th, 2015 in standard IMAX formats, unquote. So with a budget of $55 million, Crimson Peak only made about $75 million at the box office, so it wasn't much of a success. Oh. This is probably due to audiences thinking that they were going to see a more straight-up horror movie, but... <laughs> Of course, the film is, quote-unquote, more of a story with a ghost in it, which is, like, the most meta moment in the film. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But most critics actually did seem to really like it, including Stephen King, who said it was, quote-unquote, gorgeous and just fucking terrifying. Wow. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's... What a compliment. That's what he, I guess that is what he would say. <laughs> <laughs> So, according to Evangelina Kindinger, quote, Crimson Peak, a tale of horror and romance, is a predictable yet surprising horror ghost film. It does not join the style of contemporary ghost movie film series such as Paranormal Activity, Insidious, and The Conjuring, but it is rather reminiscent of horror romances such as Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula or Neil Jordan's interview with a vampire. Its plot, method, and style seem predictable because Del Toro and screenwriter Matthew Robbins quote other horror traditions mapping the development of the genre from early gothic fiction, sentimentalism, and romance to classic horror films of the 1950s to Giallo and slasher films, as well as a postmodern self-referential horror. Crimson Peak is exemplary of Rick Warland's understanding of the horror film as a cinematic genre that draws together and transforms mythic and literary traditions, forming a pool of images and themes that filmmakers reference, vary, or revise, and that often tactically or directly references its forebears and acknowledges its place in a larger tradition, if only to invert or undercut the assumptions and expectations and expectations of those earlier works, unquote. Oh. Yeah, so I feel like if you love horror, you can't not love Crimson Peak. I know. It's it, just, it's like a staple, you know what I mean? It was, it's like, it was literally made for you. <laughs> I know. It's like corn and mashed potatoes, you know what I mean? Like, you need to have those in your diet. I don't know if you really need to have those in your diet. I don't think you do. I think that it's was kind of like, a weird comparison, I, but <laughs> it's like it's like pizza. Everyone loves pizza. Oh yes, yes and yes, if yes, you yes, don't yes, love yes. pizza, it's like mm, something's wrong with you. <laughs> if you don't like pizza and you don't like dogs, I don't like you. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Listen, just kidding. everyone has their own like idea. So a lot of people don't like Crimson Peak for another reason. Which will be our final thought. Mm -hmm. um, 
And that is also very valid. So we're just kind of teasing because we just love this movie so much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, I realized that we did not do the Bechdel test or Nancy's dream team <laughs> test when we talked about our last episode 28 days later. <laughs> oh did my you God. know that? Did you? I don't no. think you did. No. Yeah. And like none of our listeners told us that we forgot it either. What? No, what? nobody. I didn't realize that we forgot it until I started like kind of copying and pasting like, you know, introductions and stuff from yep, our other yep. script into this one. And I was Aww. like, hmm. I said the Nancy's dream team test and Bechtel test like prompts aren't in this script. I don't oh, think we did them. My oh, my God. Uh, so, yeah, none of our <laughs> listeners told us, which is fine. But that makes me wonder. Uh, no one missed it. <laughs> yeah. That's very true. So if no so one missed it. So I guess it, it was kind of telling that they didn't tell us. Right. <laughs> so, you know, um, I've lately really felt like it's super dated. Like the Bechtel test is very dated. Um, yeah. Because there is so much more to representation and feminism and intersectional feminism than the Bechtel test. Mm-hmm. And, you know... This show grows with us like you and I are not the same feminists that we were four years ago when we started this show. (laughs) Yeah, no, 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 no. And I truly feel like we've also matured like 20 years since the first episode. (laughs) Yes, I agree. And we still have a lot of work to do and a lot of learning and growing. So I think we'll just let that part of our show die a quick, painless death and just move on. (laughs) <laughs> yes rip to nancy's dream team and the bechdel test yeah moment of, moment of silence okay moving on yep <laughs> okay let's get into our discussion <laughs> so a bluebeard marriage and gothic horror Ooh. all right so i got my trusty rusty book uh dead blondes and bad mothers by jude ellison sadie doyle and it is a staple. Every horror fan should own one. It's the corn to the mashed potato. It's the corn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, I'm going to read here from the chapter on Mowage. Mowage. Um, and it starts off uh, called The Bloody Chamber. So, oh, <laughs> marriage, the bloody chamber. Well, Love listen, it. listen. <laughs> Here you oh, go. Here okay. it is. <laughs> okay, so Western culture typically posits marriage as a blissful event. The reward at the end of Shakespearean comedies and Disney movies and every deserving woman's life. But there has always been a darker story we tell about marriage. Bluebeard warning his virginal bride away from his bloody chamber where the corpses of wives past lie in wait. Doyle goes on to say, for much of history, violence was not something unfortunate that happened within marriage. Violence was marriage. It was a brutal institution, the primary mechanism by which men subdued individual women and put their unruly, monstrous sexuality under control. Doyle goes on to say, Bluebeard's stories provide one of the few venues women have to talk about the pervasive nature of marital violence. Like the slashers, they convert private trauma into public spectacle, giving women a language for their pain. 
and Doyle continues saying, The Gothic turned everyday family life inside out to produce anxiety nightmares of unnatural and illegitimate reproduction, child abuse, sexual perversion, and most importantly, for our purposes, untrustworthy, violent husbands. And to continue, Women are indoctrinated from birth to overlook or forgive men's bad behavior, especially when it comes to relationships, unquote. Oh, dear. (laughs) Yeah. So Del Toro has said that a huge inspiration for Crimson Peak was the specific works of writer Anne Radcliffe, known mainly for her book, The Mysteries of El Dolfo. In the book Monster, she wrote by Lisa Kroger and Melanie R. Anderson, they write... In, Ra- in Radcliffe's Oldolfo, quote, the castle at first seems haunted thanks to various ghostly sights and sounds, but Radcliffe preferred the narrative technique of the explained supernatural, meaning that the spooky atmosphere turns out to have been real-world explanations. For example... Emily, the main character, is horrified to find, lurking behind an ominous black curtain, what she thinks to be a rotting corpse, but it turns out to be a melted wax figure. That may seem like a letdown to modern horror readers. Show us the bloody corpse, please. (laughs) But Radcliffe's choice was intentional. Ghosts are spooky, but the true threat was one she saw in the real world, Men who are willing to abuse women in order to gain wealth. Patriarchy and greed. They'll get you every time. No supernatural phenomenon required. And they go on to say, Today, Radcliffe is considered not only a pioneer of her genre, but also a voice for women's rights. Her particular and incredibly popular take on the female gothic focused on the abuses women suffered at the hands of men, especially through traditional institutions like marriage. They continue and say, It's difficult to imagine the horror genre without the familiar elements of the gothic, and without Radcliffe's captivating storytelling, we may not have had gothic horror at all. Basically, (laughs) yeah, so there is definitely this connection between uh, the horror that women encounter with marriage and the gothic. It's obviously something that was considered very scary for women in the Victorian era. Mm -hmm. And it was not always something that was beautiful and heavenly and wonderful. And uh, really, fairy tales like Bluebeard and, you know, stories like especially ones by Anne Radcliffe really do focus on women who have money, who get married and have that money like taken from them. And that's what happens in Crimson Peak. So you can see the connection there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I really do think that we wouldn't have the gothic genre without the contribution of women. Like, it just would not exist because... Oh, it wouldn't. It would be a completely different genre, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, and we do have a lot of very uh, well-written gothic novels that are by men, but definitely, like, what is, like, really interesting is that the ones that are mostly about marriage and the horrors Mm -hmm. of marriage are the ones written by women. So. Uh, Let's talk about the gothic double, particularly Lucille and Edith. We actually discussed the gothic double before, 
And we've talked about Bluebeard before, too, primarily in our episode about the movie Gothica. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I want to talk about it more in depth here because it it makes more sense in this film than it did in Gothica. And I want to quote Roger Luckhurst for their book, Gothic and Illustrated History. Great book. Another great book. Beautiful pictures, beautiful drawings, beautiful paintings. Everything in this book is awesome. Okay, so Luckhurst says, In Jordan Peele's horror film Us from 2019, the Wilson home is invaded at night by a group of four intruders. They're unnerving doubles. An allegory for the structural underpinning of affluent America by invisible yet identical others looms into view. But the most disturbing sections of the film are these opening uncanny moments of domestic confrontation. This relies on a long gothic tradition of uncanny doubles or doll-like substitutes. The worst monsters are very likely to lie within us. And Luckhurst continues and says... A shadow has fallen across the repetition of home sweet home, making it subtly non-identical with itself. It is from this apparent safety or in the mirror image that is supposed to reflect myself back to me that disquiet begins to bubble up. We are entering into the uncanny valley. Luckhurst goes on to say, From the beginning, the gothic romance has invested in figures of the double, dark, usurping others to in plots replete with structural echoes. The German term doppelganger, or double walker, was first coined in the 1796 gothic novel Cybenkaz, I'm probably saying that wrong, <laughs> by, by Jean-Paul, and defined as the name for the people who see themselves. The Gothic romance appeared in 18th century England alongside the resurgence of Celtic folklore, and its rich array of doubles strongly influenced early attempts to evoke the supernatural. I want to go back to the key term here of doppelganger, uh, defined as the name for people who see themselves. Just keep that in mind. So scary. Mm Mm-hmm. Luckhurst goes on to say, the Gothic romance has the critic Eve... Kosofki Sedgwick has pointed out always been full of stories of men pursued by other men and this hidden des- is this hidden desire which then turns into its opposite or persecution unto death Sedgwick called this driver of the gothic plot a homosexual panic this perhaps maps too closely back from Oscar Wilde's version of the double plot in the picture of Dorian Gray, but it also takes in all those missing reflections and shadows in German romanticism. Luckhurst goes on to say a more subtle allegory of homosexual panic has been read into a number of Henry James stories, most disturbingly in his late tale, The Jolly Corner, where the decidedly perverse Spencer Bryden chases his own ghost through the rooms of an empty house, only to come face to face with a mutilated version of a different monstrous self, unquote. Ugh. So the gothic uh, double is in, I would say, in most gothic literatures, uh, literature and movies. And according to Patrick Brahm, 
Within the gothic genre, the uncanny holds a prominent place. Lisa Hopkins has argued the classic genre marker of the gothic film is doubleness, or it is the dualities typically created by the gothic that invest in its uncanny ability. The doubleness of Crimson Peak is found in many forms. The dueling characters of Edith and Lucille represent a doubling that creates polarities. Extreme good is opposed to extreme evil. Extreme innocence is to extreme power. And very often extreme youth to extreme age. The polar characteristics of Edith and Lucille are represented in an early scene at a public park. After giving Thomas the latest draft of her manuscript, Edith walks over to Lucille, who is snipping cocoons from a tree branch. Standing next to Lucille, Edith notices and inquires about all the dead butterflies at her feet, to which Lucille responds, They take their heat from the sun, and when it deserts them, they die. (laughs) (laughs) Del Toro frames this shot with the two characters side by side in stark contrast, visualized through their polar fashion tastes. Edith is seen wearing a bright white, pink, and tan dress, while Lucille is dressed all in black with a single red rose on her chest. Lucille then explains that at Allerdale Hall, all they have are black moths, which she describes as formidable creatures. While the two are set up as opposites through their fashion, Del Toro also links the characters in, in sexually, Edith as the butterfly and Lucille as the black moth. The implication is that Lucille, the formidable black moth, is slow, will slowly capture and kill the beautiful and innocent Edith, unquote. So the two women even look at Allerdale Hall differently. Uh, according to Amelia Musap, Quote, for Edith, the mansion functions as a prison, a place of persecution and oppression. No, I'm afraid I shall go mad here if I stay. I have to leave. I have to get away from here, is what she says. For Lucille, the mansion functions as a safe haven, harboring illicit behavior and a privilege the Sharp family was born into their only possession. Throughout the narrative, Lucille is driven by her fear of being taken away from both Thomas and Allerdale Hall, reminiscing about her early childhood, the murder of her mother, and her stay and her stay in a mental institution. She says to Thomas, "You have no idea what they would do. I would be taken from here." Unquote. To continue this idea of Edith and Lucille being mirror images of each other, Lucille and Thomas's taboo and incestuous relationship is seen as shocking and sickening, although also somewhat sympathetic. Incest is very often used in Gothic literature as means to shock and disgust the reader and is first seen in Radcliffe's The Castles of Athlin and Dunbane. But most notably, it's seen in Bronte's Withering Heights, Walpole's The Castle of Atrano, and probably most shockingly, V.C. Andrews' book Flowers in the Attic. But listen, Edith is pretty rightly disgusted by the incest happening between the siblings. But again, (laughs) if Lucille is Edith's darker half or mirror image, this could be seen as the sickening marriage between herself, Edith, and Thomas. Mm. A man who married her for her money so that he could work on his goddamn ridiculous invention. (laughs) But anyway, we'll talk more about incest in the next topic. Sorry. (laughs) 
Anyway, according to Marine Galine, quote, as her evil twin, Lucille may represent the young woman's repressed urges for power and domination. Her sexual drives, the transgressive identity and manipulation of Thomas, are indeed a far cry from Edith's meek character. She embodies the emancipated daughter who killed her mother and almost wed her brother in a distorted rewriting of the Oedipus complex. Vampirically going on and off stage at will, Lucille could be seen as a literary creation of Edith's fertile mind, a blank canvas onto which Edith could project her fantasies before stabbing her with that symbolic pen, unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, But anyway, we're going to talk more about the women in the Gothic home in a bit. But I want to quote Evangelina Kindinger uh, real quick here from their article, Guillermo Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak, 19th century female Gothic and the slasher. Because there are more examples of the Gothic double besides Lucille and Edith. They say, quote, as domestic phenomena, ghosts of women that are trapped at home and in ethereal bodies mirror women's invisibility and powerlessness. They act as women's supernatural doubles. Reminders of women victimized by violence in their own homes, of women dispossessed of homes and property, of the necessity of understanding female history, and of the bonds between women, living and dead, which help to ensure women's survival. The ghosts in Crimson Peak ensure Edith's survival. They are allies who help her face the and escape a deathly fate caused by a marriage, caused by marriage, and the entry into a domestic life. The first ghost Edith encounters is quite tellingly that of her mother. Unquote. There's also even like a doubling of like the locations. There's Buffalo, New York, and Allerdale Hall, aka Crimson Peak. Buffalo is bright and sunny and modern, while Crimson Peak is decrepit and cold. But we'll talk more about, like, what Crimson Peak, the mansion, could mean later on. I just noticed, too, uh, their names also are, they're kind of posed as, like, opposing, um, like, opposing forces. Like, Lucille is very close to Lucifer. Yes. And Edith is very close to Eden or like Eve. Oh, so. Yes, you're right. It takes on that like traditional, like biblical sort of meaning and stuff too. But um, something else I wanted to talk about, and we brought this up in, uh, more than a few times before, <laughs> but I want to point out that this whole movie is pretty much based on like your shadow self. In my opinion, my right. very, very humble opinion. But, oh, it definitely is, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's incredibly interesting that although Lucille is arguably a monster, she is represented as like a sort of mother figure, while Edith is warm and caring and what we would typically automatically associate with motherhood, but she's this like virginal and inexperienced character in a way that makes her seem very childlike and in fact Lucille points out to Thomas that she's just a child and in a way Lucille is kind of looking out for Edith because I think for a split second she feels bad about like plucking this young girl up and taking her to die at Crimson Peak and it shows this kind of wonderful duality of also bringing the past into the future 
and it kind of rips apart our ideas of motherhood and purity and how women deal with generational trauma that gets handed to them from their elders. So I thought that that was just kind of an interesting reflection on the shadow self of these characters. And Yes, and I'm really glad that you brought up that that um, Lucille has sort of a, as small as it is, she does sort of have a heart. Yes. And yeah. Edith also definitely has a, a killer instinct in her. Yes. So I think it's almost not right to say that one is pure good and one is pure evil. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's why that it's really easy to kind of see they see almost themselves in each other. Yes. Uh, and where Lucille is this very dark half, Edith is does is not in touch with that dark half yet, and she mm-hmm. is by the end of the film. Yes. But yeah. yes, the there's like a great character arc to this film. I think. <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, Lucille dies at the end, and I almost think that once she dies, Edith and her become one. Yes. And now yeah. there's this balance. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I agree. Um, it's kind of representative of, like, not killing those dark urges, but mm-hmm. knowing what you're capable of, and then kind of, I guess, living with the ghosts of what you've done, in a way. So... We mentioned how generational trauma gets handed down through your elders and stuff like that. And, you know, speaking of elders, there are ghosts everywhere here that are representative of the past. But Edith seems to be the only one who can really see them, making me making me wonder if she really possesses what Lucille lacks, and that's empathy. Listen, though, I'm so sorry. Listen. Lucille does know that the ghosts are there, though. Yes. Because she says, oh, I think Edith saw Mother last night. (laughs) Yep. Yes. So I wonder if at one point Edith did, was it, or um, Lucille was able to see them and she no longer can. Right. Like she's either almost become desensitized to them or she is just so far gone that she... Like, they don't even bother with her anymore, almost, right. because right. she's at the point in her life where there isn't really any way that she can change her behavior because it's so ingrained into oh, her. Oh, she's, so, unfortunately, yeah, she's gone. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that those ghosts that serve as a warning to Edith are like, we're not even going to waste our time with this lady. <laughs> Because, well, no, because she poisoned them with the tea, so right, she killed right. them. <laughs> oh, that yeah, that's actually a really good point. Yeah, <laughs> um, but like we were saying um, a minute ago, Lucille, she's a product of her environment for sure, and she is the moth to Edith's butterfly. And um, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm not a doctor, but I'm going to say that Lucille definitely battles with um, some mental disorders. And I would say like borderline personality disorder is one that sticks out a lot to me. Um, And I'll get more into that in another topic that we're going to talk about. But she just makes life so hard for Edith. 
when she comes to Crimson Peak because she feels so threatened by her light. Like everything has to live in shadow with Lucille because it's safer that way. And, you know, no one knows about her and Thomas. No one knows about their family history. So the shame kind of stays buried and they live in this darkness. It consumes them. Whereas Edith was very much brought up in the light. And she writes about the things that Thomas and Lucille experience because she has to hold this idea that, like, she knows about these things, but she doesn't actually have the life experience that they do, which is, I think, why it cuts her so deep when Thomas tells her that, you know, you're nothing more than a spoiled child and she doesn't understand these things. So it's like this very... um interesting dynamic between all the characters where like Lucille and Thomas they're living this and they're so steeped in this lifestyle that they're just kind of like whatever this is normal to us and then you have Edith who is like wanting to experience these dark things that she writes about almost and it's like right within her grasp when she comes to Crimson Peak it's just like Oh, man, it was so well written, I think. And it shows the balance between that dark and lightness. Yes. So perfectly. I mean, and like, like, like I said, like she is not able to quote unquote write until Lucille is dead. And mm-hmm. she kind of accepts that darkness within herself. Yep. Then she's able to write about it. And we'll talk about this later, but at the end of the movie, when the book closes, it says that it's a book named Crimson Peak written by Edith Cushing. Yeah. (laughs) She's able to write the story because she has experienced her her darker half, which is in the form of Lucille, symbolically. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wow. I love it. Me too. Love it. All right. Let's get into incest, I guess. Sorry. Mm. Um, But it is important. (laughs) Let's talk about the gothic sibling and incest. uh, Quote, unquote, more than sister. Uh, (laughs) According to Jenny DePlacidi in their book, Gothic Incest, Gender, Sexuality, and Transgression, quote, in the gothic novel, The Brother rarely rarely presents a threat to the heroine instead functioning more commonly as an equal sufferer under patriarchal power it is i argue the potential for equality akin to what carolyn rooney calls a feeling of universal sympathy associated with the sister that underpines the relationships between brothers and sisters and makes the bonds between siblings so dangerous and potentially destructive to patriarchal society. This potential for unraveling society in a way that renders father figures both obsolete and unnecessary causes sibling desire to be treated as perhaps the most dangerous and complicated of all incestuous relationships represented in the Gothic. The destruction of patriarchal society is affected through the dissolution of social growth into a condition of familial stasis that, unlike father-daughter incest, in- excludes any paternal or head of family position, unquote. Mm. says also romantic models of narcissistic love presume a heightened self-love, often not 
present in gothic heroines, while sentimental models of incest rely frequently on a post-coital discovery of kinship or an implicit didacticism that is rarely present in the genre. So this idea of like blood telling, the blood will out, you know, that sort of thing. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. So I think it's really interesting that we have a brother-sister incestuous relationship in this film um, because the power is equal. But is it though? Because... Mm -hmm. Lucille mm-hmm. does seem to have more power than Thomas. Yes. But she's unable to kind of be the quote-unquote man of the house because she is the woman of the house. Right. So she uses Thomas as her, because they have this incestuous relationship, they are sort of like the same and this is actually in Bronte's Wuthering Heights, where uh, Catherine says, um, I'm just like quoting off the top of my head, but Catherine says, I am Heathcliff. Heathcliff is me. And they're half siblings and they have an incestuous relationship. So Lucille is Thomas. Thomas is Lucille. Is like yeah. what is like what is kind of happening here where they're sort of the same person. And Lucille just happens to be that side of the person that's in more control mentally, where Thomas is maybe in more control physically Mm -hmm. because he is the man of the house. But anyway, Mm -hmm. isn't that an interesting thing? That is very interesting. And um, I also want to say, too, kind of along the same lines of this topic is like when I first saw this movie in theaters I thought that Lucille was acting the way that she was because she like was extremely attracted to Edith well that goes back to the doubling and the homosexual panic where you're being chased by your double because you have a desire for the same sex yeah so in a way it's almost like she is experiencing that vicariously through Thomas, but mm-hmm. like when they have sex, she's like imagining what it would be like to have sex with Edith. Like <laughs> it's like this whole triangulation of like, yeah, very strange feelings. <laughs> yes, no, that's actually an amazingly good point because she gets mad when they stay together, but is she mm-hmm. mad at? Edith for sleeping with Thomas because she loves Thomas or because she has feelings for Edith. Yes. Or maybe both. Or both. Oh Oh my god. Well that's what I mean. It's like if 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 Lucille is Thomas and Thomas is Lucille, they experience the same emotions. Yep. Just one is maybe more quote unquote in control of them, Thomas, than the other, which is Lucille, which is a little bit sexist. But yeah. We'll talk about that at the end of this movie, or at the end of this episode, but yeah, um, I think that that's an excellent observation. So according to Emilia Usap, quote, according to Paula Gunn and James Welch, incest thrives on the trope par excellence throughout the Gothic tradition, and the drive towards an incestu- incestuous union has ever since the late 18th century Gothic novel haunted its landscape. 
However, there has been a shift in the interpretation of this trope in contemporary Gothic narratives. Gunn and Welch state that in the early Gothic works, women were not represented as having any sexual subjectivity of their own, and the narrative sustained the trope of the angel in the house by representing their heroines and dehumanized and lacking erotic desire. The sexually active and eroticized woman, particularly the ones voluntarily voluntarily engaging in incest, operated on the fringes of the dominant social order. Therefore, they were portrayed as transgressive and were ultimately punished. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Contemporary gothic narratives are always in dialogue with their predecessors, leaving us with the haunting feeling that we have visited this particular castle before. Gunn and Welch refer to various contemporary narratives in order to question whether the female character can deconstruct her archetypal, archetypal position of a victim. They argue that no matter how much a certain female character is liberated, she is always punished for her sexual and taboo desire and is never freed from being a sexual and social casualty. The incestuous relationship between Lucille and Thomas reveals a female character which Gunn and Welch refer to as the new woman, or more correctly, perhaps, a more powerful and feminized being in which binaries are combined and thus collapsed. Male and female, erotic and familial, hunter and hunted, victim and perpetrator, unquote. And I actually think it's really interesting that Gunn and Welch call Lucille the quote-unquote new woman. Because in our next topic, arguably, Edith could be called that as well. But we'll talk about that when we get there. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that they say that the binaries kind of collapse because I think this story is very binary in that way. Mm. Like, it doesn't give a lot of room for women to be sexual in a way that is safe and satisfying because... Mm. Both women are in peril when they express themselves sexually. The only safe, quote unquote, relationship in this film is uh, the platonic one that Edith has with Alan, her childhood friend, who ultimately comes to her rescue. And that's coded as a romantic relationship anyway. Like they talk about how attracted Alan is to Edith and stuff like that. But it's also really interesting to look at how incest is talked about in stories like this because if you look at psychiatric literature um i found when i was doing research for this episode that for a while it was thought that incest was extremely rare and didn't have super serious implications to those who are victims uh and i was like excuse the fucking shit out of me but where did that idea come from like you're talking about a possibly abusive relationship between two siblings. Like, why would you think that wouldn't have dire right. consequences? <laughs> but I guess for a while, like, incest was taboo, even in the psych worlds. So that was kind of a surprise to me as I researched this episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just very strange. Um, <laughs> I mean, incest, incest in Gothic literature was used to shock the reader. Yes. So it yes. wasn't like people knew about incest as like a normal thing, even then mm-hmm. in Victorian era. It yep. was like, like, ooh, this is kind of disgusting. You know, like it was Which, like to, it was put into the book to discuss the reader intentionally. 
Yes, which is so. so weird because in old, old, old royal families, incest was like the norm. And yeah, that's why it, I was kind of shocked that it was used as a way to shock the reader. I was yes. like, wow, really? Y'all didn't think this was okay even back then? Okay. <laughs> like, yes. You know? Like, I feel like incest isn't something that really like waxes and wanes. Like it's been around for a long time. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really important to look at how we define incest also because when we can recognize the behaviors and give it a name, then you do a better job of getting people the help that they need and all that happy stuff. But according to an article from the Psychiatric Times, the close relationship between perpetrator and victim complicates the trauma of the incestuous act or acts with both relational trauma and betrayal trauma. So you're dealing with like all of the bullshit basically that comes with being abused and it sucks um this is described by uh sheenberg and frankel and it leads to significant loss of trust in others and increased anger hurt and confusion about their family relationships changes in beliefs about the safety of close relationships changes in beliefs about the safety of close relationships in general and negative views of the self in relation to others. So that sounds familiar, right? Like that sounds like our girl Lucille. Um, (laughs) Betrayal trauma described by Freud encompasses the unique hurt associated with violations by those who have a basic obligation and duty to protect and nurture and extends to those who refuse to believe or help the victim adding to the victim's traumatization. So when we look at the Sharps and how Thomas kind of reacts to this or doesn't react to like Edith finding out and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. there's like a weird moment, I think, in Thomas where he's like, oh, this is wrong, but is this really wrong? Mm. (laughs) It's, It's very interesting to watch their reactions in the film. You know what I just thought of? Hmm. If there's this triangle of, of like this mirror image of everybody, mm-hmm. this would explain why Thomas is attracted to Edith. Yeah. Because if he's also attracted to Lucille and he's connected yep. to Lucille, you know, in a toxic way, he would also be maybe attracted to Edith. Maybe Edith reminds him of how Lucille was before she, I don't want to say lost her mind, but she went down well, she the got, darker path. <laughs> yeah, she got more sick progressively. Sick, yes. And so this is like this toxic triangle of everybody reminds everyone of themselves. I mean, maybe Edith also sort of reminds Lucille of Thomas in this innocent sort of like wanting to be something more than what they are type way. And that's what attracts her to that. Ooh, you are on the right track because we're going to like dive right into that in our next topic. Oh, Um, yes. So uh, to kind of summarize all of that incest trauma, um, basically it leads to more abuse later on down the road and often victims become perpetrators they kind of end up 
dealing with these emotions that are tied to their abuse and their future relationships and that sort of thing. But that brings us to mental health or lack thereof in Crimson Peak. (laughs) I want to talk about something called trauma bonds. This is a very, very popular topic in mental health right now because researchers are discovering that these trauma bonds are to blame for a lot of the behaviors that we see um, in interpersonal relationships and that kind of thing. But they're everywhere in this film. Even the dog has a trauma bond with Edith. (laughs) Oh, Papillon. (laughs) Yeah. But what the heck are they? So according to (laughs) the Wikipedia definition, very scientific of me, I know. Oh. Um, Trauma bonds are emotional bonds with an individual that arise from a recurring cyclical pattern of abuse perpetuated by intermittent reinforcement through rewards and punishments. The process of forming trauma bonds is referred to as trauma bonding or traumatic bonding. We see an obvious one of these in Lucille and Thomas, but... Edith and Thomas share something that is unique to their own personalities. Uh, In a way, you could argue that Thomas is almost like an only child because Lucille is his lover. So he doesn't know really what it's like to have a sibling because he was pretty much, from the time he could remember, like always in some kind of romantic relationship with her. From the time that they were very, very young. And on top of this, Lucille serves as kind of like a surrogate mother. Edith has no siblings. The closest thing she has is Alan. But like we mentioned before, there are romantic connotations there as well. So there's trauma bond number one in Crimson Peak. For number two, we have the fact that they are both orphans. So... Feeling like you're alone in the world can lead you straight into the arms of people who are incredibly toxic and also prey on those who are vulnerable in this way. It's a very, very common thing. It's seen over and over again. And it's a common trope um, in tragic stories that we hear about all the time, whether they're gothic or horror or whatever. It's like a big thing in storytelling. Um, Trauma bond number three Thomas and Edith's sexuality. Um, I think the concept of virginity is really dumb. Like, I really do. I think it's a construct of our culture that makes women feel smaller for having human experiences that men seem to have a birthright to. Also, if you're queer, like if you're a lesbian and you've never had sex with a man, does that mean you're always a virgin? Right, exactly. Do you know what I mean? So it's just like, yes. what is what does it mean? Yeah, exactly. So it's just, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. It's Yeah, it's outdated. But um, I also think that having sex for the first time is very special. If it's with someone that you care for very much and it's like like a consensual thing and you both are like feeling it or whatever. Right. But Thomas was robbed of that experience, in my opinion, because oh, his yeah. sister was a predator. She... Like, Lucille had a lot to contend with, but she's still a predator. So for Thomas, there is a lot of nervousness around sex. But Edith is very warm and gentle and loving. And And she is his only sexual experience that's not 
relational. Yes. Because he never had sex with the other wives. Yes. Yep. Edith is also lonely. She wants to experience sex with her husband, obviously. And in a way, I think her kind of seeking comfort in this way could be interpreted as wanting like a break from the trauma. Like she wants to feel good. And she's seeking solace in physical comfort and intimacy, which in normal circumstances, nothing wrong with that. Right. However, this is not a normal circumstance. <laughs> so um, I, I feel like that may seem like a stretch to some people. But upon rewatching this, I was like, wow, I don't really think anyone here is having a healthy sexual relationship. <laughs> so that's a that's a big yikes. Okay, so the trauma bonds and incest aside, let's talk about Lucille and why I think she might have borderline. According to Mayo Clinic's diagnostic definition, with borderline personality disorder, you have an intense fear of abandonment or instability, and you may have difficulty tolerating being alone. Yet, inappropriate anger, impulsiveness, and frequent mood swings may push others away, even though you want to have a loving and lasting relationship. According to the UK NHS, borderline is triggered by being a victim of emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, being exposed to long-term fear or distress as a child, being neglected by one or both parents, Mm. growing up with another family member, who had a serious mental health condition such as bipolar disorder or a drink or drug misuse problem. And we see that in both Thomas and Lucille's parents. Their father was gone all the time. He was abusive towards their mother. So really, it is no surprise that these disorders have manifested in them. Um, And really, you could argue that Thomas also suffers from um borderline personality disorder as well. He has been a victim from a very young age, so he figures out a way to keep this generational cycle going, which is all he can do because it's all he knows. So this really creates a tragic gothic soup (laughs) in this way. But You know, bottom line is characters like these have existed in gothic tales for such a long time that in a way we have these stories to thank for their contribution to what it means to be human and struggle with disorders like borderline, even though we may not have known that they existed back then. Right. I think everything at the time was considered schizophrenia. Yes. Yep. If, if, if that, it was just like, it was like hysteria or schizophrenia and there was no other mental diagnosis or anything else. Yep. It was like a huge blanket that kind of covered every base. And they, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways the supernatural was used to explain them or like, because we don't know what's happening. We can't explain it. So obviously it's scary to us, but I mean, in this case, ghosts are absolutely real And they are represented by these psychological disorders and horrendous murders and family secrets. But they're not there to frighten us, really, Mm -hmm. even though they do. They're there to warn us that something is wrong. And I really love how storytelling has managed to kind of service us in this way. And I think that's why stories like this are so important. And they're crucial to explaining the human condition. So, right. 
Well, speaking of stories, Mm -hmm. let's talk about the female writers and women and ghosts. Ooh, yes. As Lucille says to Edith, you thought you were a writer with your ghosts. (laughs) Was that a good impression? Uncanny, truly. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Jessica Chastain said, um... She was super depressed while she was making this movie, and she was talking to Tom Hiddleston about it. And he was like, well, you know, the actor never doesn't have fun unless the character's having fun. And she, like, thought about it, and she was like, I don't think Lucille's ever had fun in her whole entire life. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, it's so sad. That is really sad. Oh, oh. my gosh. Okay. Oh. So, according to Evangelina Kindinger, quote, her interest in ghost stories... Edith, reflects women writers' dominance of that genre and its popularity at the time. Women's ghost stories spoke particularly to a female readership and drew their key concerns from women's culture, sometimes crossing with other genres. Until Edith falls in love and leaves for England, she is first and foremost represented as a writer who has difficulties fitting in because she is a woman. She is known to be an outcast in both the sphere of urban, American fun de secret, femininity, and the publishing world. Other women her age mock her as a spinster and Buffalo's very own Jane Austen. You know what? That's fine. Because it just is, okay? Jane Austen knew. (laughs) For sure. Uh, Belittling her ambitions to be a writer instead of a wife. Their reactions to Edith are not only meant to arouse the audience's sympathy, they serve as a reminder of women writers' struggles in the past and today, pulled between the seemingly incompatible expectations society has of women and respectively writers, unquote. This also brings to mind how the editor or publisher she visits is like severely disappointed that Edith has written a ghost story. And she corrects him and says, of course, it's a story with a ghost in it. Um, but he tells her han- her that her handwriting is beautiful or something or other and suggests that she writes like a love story instead. And then Edith, I know. And then Edith tells her dad, who gifts her a pen, that she wants to like not write her manuscripts anymore, but type them up because she doesn't want her feminine handwriting to give her away. It's so sad. <laughs> Uh, women then and now feel as if they need to disappear in order to, in order for their work to be taken seriously. As Kendinger says, quote, Edith needs to become a ghostly figure if she wishes to succeed in the literary marketplace, unquote. Oh, wow. And Edith explains that in her story, the ghost is a metaphor, Well, as Kindinger goes on to say, quote, in Crimson Peak, the ghosts reveal an untold story of female suffering. And, quote, women writers did not only use the ghost as a consolation, but also a metaphor for social dilemmas. The ghost's liminal existence mirrored the position of women in patriarchal industrial America and clearly had representational and sociocultural functions, meanings, and effects. To return to Adele Pilar, Blanco, and Perrine. As a bitextual tool, the ghost creates uneasiness and fright and addresses uncomfortable social issues. The ghost and its ambiguous return have far-reaching social consequences. 
History is reintroduced into the arena of the present, but in such a way that it threatens the fixity of existing social structures, for instance, of patriarchy. In the time Crimson Peak revisits, ghosts are employed by women writers to address the cult of domesticity and the myth that the domestic sphere would protect a woman's purity and piety. This cult ultimately masked the oppression and abuse the women experienced at home. The house haunted by women thus became an embodiment of female tradition, unquote. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Uh, So what Crimson Peak also highlights is what Natalie Wilson says is the new woman, right? We talked about that earlier with Lucille being the new woman. But in their book, Willful Monstrosity, Gender and Race in the 21st and in 21st Century Horror, uh, Wilson says that it is Edith. Quote, many gothic tales of the Victorian era showcase new women archetypes new women characters, a figure that circulated in the popular press, the consumer world, and the theoretical treaties, most often in ways that depicted her as a social menace associated with the dangers of female emancipation. Patricia Murphy, who also addresses the feminist work carried out via fictional new women, argues characters of this ilk spoke to the suffocating weight of tradition, that imprisoned females in a choking patriarchal embrace, something that she reads in relation to the live burial motif imbuing Gothic text. This entry into a premature grave experienced by female characters provides a haunting reflection of real-world oppressions, ones which the new woman railed against. And of course, Crimson Peak is a good example of this. Ooh. Wilson says... As for the 2015 film Crimson Peak, it has a female author as its at its narrative center, one who encapsulates the ambitious, career-minded new woman of the early 20th century, unquote. Damn. Yeah. So, really, I mean, you could say that Lucille is sort of trying to, even though she is sort of a new woman, character she is almost like she's almost like a dark the dark half of that like we talked about earlier but like she she sees edith as as this person who could take care of herself and use her writing to like provide for her where lucille doesn't have that right Mm -hmm. she's very much a new woman maybe sexually but her sexual desires are taboo So she can't bring them out into the world like Edith could. Hi, y'all. It's Gracie from the editing room. I just thought of this while I was editing this episode. So this is a first where I'm like popping in and like adding this new like audio to the episode from the cutting room floor. But uh, Edith has this skill where she is a writer, which would probably at the time be considered very masculine, right? Where Lucille, who... uh, is like right like there's these two versions of the new woman right you have edith as the new woman but then you have lucille who also has a skill and that skill is the piano which is arguably especially at the time a very feminine skill and from what i understand a lot of women 
in this era were expected to learn French and they were expected to uh, learn Italian, I guess, or the two leg languages outside of English that they were expected to learn. And they were expected to learn the piano and sing. So uh, very feminine, I would say very feminine languages, you know, they're romantic languages. Um, and there's a feminine, arguably very feminine uh, skills, piano and singing. And so here is Edith, who has this masculine skill, and Lucille with this feminine skill. And uh, this could go in a lot of ways. We could see that, you know, being feminine and having feminine skills uh, makes you, (laughs) maybe makes you like evil, you know, like Lucille is, you know, quote unquote, but, uh, and that feminine skills are wrong and whatever. That's not the case at all. Okay, you can absolutely have feminine skills and be a badass bitch. But I thought that I just was thinking that while I was editing this, how super interesting that is that these two, that this, these two women, these doubles, these mirror images of each other, one has a very masculine skill and one has a very feminine skill. And uh, Lucille is almost punished for having this skill. I mean, she dies in the end, right? Uh, so it's sort of like this death of the quote-unquote old woman, right? With these fit feminine, like, skills. And then the birth of the new woman with these masculine skills. Whoa. Whoa. Okay, I just wanted to just put this in here. It's like, this is like two minutes long. I'm so sorry. But I was just thinking this while I was editing this. Okay, back to the show. I agree more with the sentiment that Edith is more of the new woman mm-hmm. because Lucille's Lucille's position as the new woman is twisted. Yes, yes, it's it, false. It's, it's wrong. <laughs> it's deformed. Right. Yes. It's a deformed yep. version of this of this great wonderful thing for women. Mm-hmm. And Edith's is a more natural, I guess, way of becoming the new woman. Um, But I want to keep talking about it. Wilson says that Stephanie Green notes the emergence of the gothic new woman can be seen as closely associated with the rise of mass print media consumptions at the 19th century. This rise in the demand for print media is just what Edith hopes to capitalize on, yet yet her hopes are dashed when an editor compliments her on her handwriting. Uh, likening herself to Mary Shelley, Edith realizes the dangers inherent in marriage. Such exchanges make up some of the many writerly moments in Crimson Peak, ones which ultimately muddle Edith's life story with the fictional story she has penned. In fact, her status as a writer bookends the narrative, one that opens her with trying to secure publication for her manuscript and ends with an image of the book entitled Crimson Peak with Edith listed on screen as its author. Mm. Yes. And so um, Wilson does mention uh, Lucille, though, Uh, right here. uh, Wilson says, quote, in contrast to the sympathetic Edith, Lucille acts as a gender traitor of sorts, serving her brother Tom's interests and the patriarchy by extension. Via this relocation to England, Edith is placed within a traditional gendered script. She is no longer an authoress, but a meek wife, confined in an attic bedroom implied with cups of poisonous tea by her vindictive sister-in-law. 
Lucille's campaign against Edith is not one of mere mean-spiritedness, but instead is informed by her family legacy, one of abusive fathers and bedridden mothers in which Lucille's only role was that of nursemaid. When Edith arrives, she is another person for Lucille to watch over, one whom Lucille will poison and try to kill, much as she did her brother's prior wives. The story here takes a cleaver to the horrific results of imprisoning females within domestic roles of mother, wife, daughter, and sister, suggesting it is time for women to step into the promises of the new century to become the type of new woman figure Edith is prior to being sucked into a life of Allerdale Hall, a decaying facade with moldering walls and a collapsing roof where red-tinted ghosts stalk the corridors. Crimson Peak re-envisions the gothic female ghosts, turning her into an ally. Unquote. So even though Lucille is very sympathetic, she obviously, she has a lot of problems. And according to Marine Galline, quote, the metaphorical pen as a weapon to kill Lucille enables Edith to break free from her gendered fetters and her evil double and finds echoes in the closing of the book at the end of the movie, unquote. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty great. I love it. Okay, so we got two more things to talk about. So the next thing is the gothic home, motherhood, and Crimson Peak's meaning. According to Amelia Wusap, quote, because of the underlying images of absent and or monstrous mothers, Allerdale Hall serves with its flooded floors, coated walls, and wells of clay overflowing with blood as a metaphor for the female body. Mm, yep. With crimson blood lavishly sprouting from dark holes, the mansion displays maternal imagery. The depiction of the womb-like interior of Allerdale Hall might be a reference to birth and maternity-related anxieties, primarily the absence of the symbolic mother who function, functions as a preserver of patriar patriarchal ideology. Non-motherly figures and absent mothers inhabit Crimson Peak, unquote. Lucille is technically a mother, but because of her incestuous sexual relationship with her brother, her baby is quote-unquote not born right, and it dies, leaving her childless because of her sin. Wusap goes on to say that Edith, too, fits in this category because, quote, Edith, who cannot fulfill her symbolic role of mother because her husband is not sexually, because her husband is sexually active with his own sister. The yeah. Yeah, so the absence of mothering, of a mothering structure, reveals Allerdale Hall to be a fallen house, run by a monstrous mother, a mad woman outside of the attic, and unconstrained, and unconstrained by the mechanisms of domestic order. Since the narrative is focused on unhomely homes and unmothering mothers, Del Toro interchanges the womb-tomb imagery to reveal that the uncanny elements are a representation of the mental state of the mansion's inhabitants. Mm. Allerdale Hall is where Lucille has committed all of her sins. The mansion takes on uncanny qualities related to the womb imagery because Lucille projects her sin onto its very structure. As a repository of numerous sins and fears, the mansion also represents a tomb, 
predestined to be buried in its turn. The womb imagery then has another role within the narrative. It is simultaneously the place of origin and a tomb for Lucille and Thomas, who eventually become unborn and fuse permanently with the very structure of the mansion, unquote. Ooh. Yes, and Maureen Galeen says, Organic howling, having a mind of its own, Allerdale Hall, the Sharps Manor in Cumberland is blatantly staged as a conscious being, first shown as the feminized victim of a foreign body, Edith, penetrating its space, as the scene shot from the inside suggests. It is first and foremost a traditional gothic space, huge but empty, cold and damp, and of course, dark. This castle was actually entirely built by Del Toro's crew for the sake of filming interior scenes and pan shots more naturally. Defined by the verticality of its lines, it is a true heir of the Gothic medieval castle in ruins. Besides, nature seems to be taking hold of the place, as Snow White, like white dust, is seen falling through the pierced ceiling into the main room while crimson clay is progressively tainting the floor. Moreover, the house is breathing. If we use Thomas's words due to the howling sound made by the wind blowing through the chimneys. In the last part of the movie, the castle is mostly filmed from the outside, in short shots, where it is shown as snow-covered, gothic and crimson, like a threatening, palpitating mass. Unquote. Oh, dear. Yeah. Oh. I love it. Yeah, me too. You could also view the house in relation to life stages. Like the previous quote mentioned, it like life started in the attic with the two sharp children. And then they made their way down to the main living area, previously forbidden to them by their mother, until they descended into the blood red clay pits beneath them. It's also no wonder that they start out innocent, close to heaven, up in the attic. And with more time and experience, they come closer to the mouth of hell when they, For like, sure. make their way down to the basement. Yes. And I think it's also really telling, too, when Thomas is like, never use the elevator and don't go down to the bottom floor. Because he's, like, warning Edith, like, to stay away from there and whatever. But um, I also love the use of blood and the color red in Allerdale. Like a womb, the house cannot survive without blood, and mm -hmm. it needs to be spilled through these sacrifices. The house itself is a living organism in this way, and it mixes like earth and humanity and life and death and dark and light, and it's the perfect balance struck by the overall themes of the film and how it relates to the characters experiencing their lives. It's just so beautiful. Yes, and I love how you mentioned, like, the, the kids start in the attic, and then they move closer and closer to the bottom of the house. Um, because Maureen Galeen says, in the Poetics of Space, the French philosopher Gaston Beclard, I think is how you say his last name, um, parallels the structure of a house and that of a mind, where the roof, where the roof aligns with rationality while the cellar is reminiscent of irrationality, darkness, and boundless depths. Del Toro's basement is nevertheless a place of clear-cut revelations, where Edith understands her role and the fate of those before her, unquote. Ooh. Yeah, and Patrick, 
Patrick Bram says the house itself becomes a malignant character, a living and breathing organism with a pulse. So, yes, this house is very much alive and well, and it feeds off of the sickness that is just growing within the house because of all this, of all the quote unquote sins that have happened there for sure. Yeah, well, it's like the theme that we talk about that reoccurs in horror all the time, and it's the role of the home and how it plays in, um, like hauntings and troubled pasts and stuff like that. Right. I mean, and in the haunting, they talk about how they feel the house is breathing. Yes. Uh, Theo and, and Eleanor say how they feel like the house is breathing. The house is alive, which is funny because the house is filled with ghosts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a like that ironic. Yes, it's true. It's like what you see in all of Stephen King's novels and, um, like the shining and stuff like that. Oh my God. It's yeah. 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 It's well, right. I think, I think probably the best example would be Rose Red. Yeah. Yep. Yep. His yep, t- yep. His TV show or his, yeah, mini, mini series. Mm. Okay. So let's get into our final thought. Is Crimson Peak really that feminist? No. <laughs> <laughs> but. I think at the very, very base, it is human. Mm -hmm. And I say this because it doesn't take particular care to put everyone on equal ground. Edith still needs to be rescued by men, even after they die. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is ridiculous. But I still love this movie. I think it's great. You know, I couldn't help but think I'm a... I'm not a feminist. I'm a humanist. When you said, <laughs> when you said that, I know that's not what you're saying, but it it no. made me chuckle. It did yes. make me chuckle. <laughs> um, but listen, I think a lot of critics of this film would agree with you, but you still like it, but they don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I just ugh. Uh, Judy Berman says Guillermo del Toro can't stop talking about the women of Crimson Peak. Uh, they say, "quote I'm or." Del Del Toro says, quote, I made a point to make every man in the film useless, he told Routers. He spent much of his panel at Comic-Con last year talking about how the twists are gender subverted and that working in a world with a secret gender war gives him a responsibility to create culture that affirms his two daughters. He's, and then Berman says, he's right, of course, but instead of Proving Del Toro's claims, Crimson Peak offers more proof that strong women whose interactions ace the Bechdel test are not enough to make a film revolutionary, unquote. Yeah. I mean, I I do think that it is really interesting that he took uh, different gender roles, quote unquote, and applied them to like the opposite sex in his film. Right. Like Tom Hiddleston shows his ass in this movie and it's like, Wow, there's no naked women, but there is a naked man. Yeah. It's like, and okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, all right, fine. Um, But, I mean, like you said, and like the article mentions, it's not revolutionary. It's been done in films before. And although I'm hugely supportive of this, like, I think that swapping these quote unquote gender roles is great. Like, it's good for everyone to have representation. Um, 
but the film hardly feels like an anthem for women. Uh, seeing Edith's father take on the role of a soft maternal figure and a protector was refreshing. But I couldn't, right. I, like, I couldn't help but feel like decisions were made for Edith throughout the film. Mm-hmm. And to me, that doesn't seem like a character that is strong enough to figure things out for herself and make choices based on the facts that she's given. Right. And her father actually withholds a lot from her, which ultimately leads to her downfall at the hands of Thomas and Lucille. Like, I feel as though if her father had been an honest or like had an honest conversation with her about why Thomas was bad news, this whole thing could have been avoided. But then we wouldn't have Crimson Peak. So yeah, he never tells her, hey, this guy's already married, honey. Don't marry him. Yeah. She would have been like, oh, you're right. I will not do that. And then the the end. <laughs> it's like her father, the entire it's actually kind of like a weird uh, metaphor for how Del Toro talks about this film. Mm. But like her father is like, oh, I love that she's so stubborn and she's independent and can make her own choices. But it's not reflected in his actions it's like he doesn't trust her with this information to be able to make her own decision and it's really frustrating you know i think berman says uh the lack of maternal figure suggests as it does in all fairy tales featuring motherless girls that strength blooms only in the absence of feminine influence It also leaves heroines disempowered romantically and sexually. Their father's guidance is usually limited, as Mr. Cushing later demonstrates, to blustering protectiveness, the kind of nuanced wisdom about love that is often passed down through generations of women isn't available, leaving daughters conveniently vulnerable to handsome strangers. And in case anyone doubts whether Crimson Peak is in fact a fairy tale, its on-screen title appears on the cover of an old book, unquote. (laughs) uh but listen i'm going to give my pretty weak opinions on this in a bit but i (laughs) do like what berman says here i think it is valid in its own right berman uh goes on to say quote for a woman so well versed by her own admission in austin and shelley edith submits quickly to thomas's advances giving up her literary aims in favor of what every smart girl secretly wants apparently which is a husband yeah crimson peak centers its women but misses an opportunity to make to make that centrality count in a bigger way it's not enough to make your women strong and your men weak unquote and i do agree with that Yes, it's it's all about the way that you do it. Right. Uh, <laughs> according to The Tasteful Goth, quote, I was disappointed to see that the film was not only not feminist, but actually seemed to reinforce damaging stereotypes. The two female leads were almost painfully archetypical. Like many fairy tales, the mother figures are absent, but they too seem to have an aura of evil surrounding them. Even the ghost of Edith's mother at the end of the film at the beginning of the film, is unnecessarily terrifying. Seriously, who would do that to their child? Unquote. That's a really, really good point. Ugh. I mean, maybe ghosts don't have a choice at how they present themselves in human to the humans. I don't know. But true, true. it is yeah. like her daughter is like terrified of her mom. At that I know. Point. Yeah. What the <laughs> heck? I know. 
it's a side note that I'd like to touch on real quick, but every single mother in this film is terrifying, including <laughs> Lucille. <laughs> yeah. Even the, the, who's that other lady? The lady who throws the party? She's yes. like uh, what you would think of a mean girl is in is high school. Is that Alan's mother? Yes. Yes. So yep, his yep, yep, mother, yep. his mother is also really scary. <laughs> she's a jerk. <laughs> she is. She is. She's upsetting to be around. Yeah. So yeah. none of the mothers in this movie are are good, quote unquote, good mothers. Yeah. Um, which you know the horror trope, like the horror mother trope, is present in many many horror films because it does represent like the stepmother trope in fairy tales. And we've talked about this in our episodes on like Hereditary and Carrie. And in fairy tales, the kind mother or the good mother is always gone or dead. And a lot of feminists do have issue with this. Even though, in my personal opinion, I think it works as a tool for the main heroine to leave the nest. It's not necessarily like a way to punish the good kind mother or the heroine. It's just like a story tool, if that makes sense. Like, that's how I like to think of it. But I do see this other side of it where it's like, yeah, like, where are the good female relationships in media, in stories? We're always pinning women against each other. And that Mm -hmm. happens in this film. Yes. No women in this film are friends. And it's and it's really disheartening. Um, the Tasteful Goth also says, quote, while the women fall prey to feminine flaws of their archetypes, gullibility, misplaced trust, or the weaknesses for Edith, and jealousy, lust, and psychopathy for Lucille, all the men come out of the film untarnished. <laughs> yeah. So, yep. since the... Since this film is mostly based on gothic literature, which was created by women for women, I think it's right to believe that this type of story, like this Bluebeard marriage story, was at the time considered feminist, even if that term didn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm pretty sure Anne Radcliffe lived and died before the term feminist was coined in the mid-1800s. So I think that this type of film, this story, much like fairy tales and gothic literature, is used as a healthy escape and a healthy way to live this fantasy of being desired by a dangerous man and having a feud with another woman. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, like gothic literature, maybe at the time was considered very feminist, but now it would not be. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of people give like books and films like this a lot of shit because they're not hardcore, like feminine, modern feminism kind of attitude, you know? Right. But like I said, I, I'm, now maybe they're not considered fem- feminist, but now I think they're a really good escape. Like Hallmark mm-hmm. movies, Lifetime movies, Disney movies, teen girl books like Twilight all definitely have issues. But I and I and I certainly don't enjoy all of them, but I feel like I can't knock anyone who does because I enjoy my own trash. Yeah. (laughs) And I think enjoying trash stories and movies is healthy when you need an escape and Mm -hmm. want to be transported to a fictional world. 
I think the danger lies in taking these stories too seriously and wanting this fiction to be real. Like, have it be a reality. Yes. That's when it's, that's when it's troubling. These stories are not meant for um, people who take things to the extreme or are highly, highly, highly influenced by outside forces. It's the same argument that you can make with video games and violent TV. It's the same thing. Right. I mean, and we've talked about this before, but even rape revenge movies. Yep. Are people, a lot of people find them really troubling. Mm-hmm. Um, they're used as a tool to escape a world where you might not be able to violently attack your attacker. Right. Right. And I think in gothic romances, you know, you maybe you have a very wonderful life with a wonderful spouse who is kind and generous to you, who treats you like an equal, and you have a great relationship with all of your female friends or your, your just your friends in general and stuff. Um, and maybe you do want kind of like a little dramatic escape into a world where your husband is a murderer and your and your all your female friends want to kill you with poison tea. Yeah. You know, sometimes you want to live that drama in a safe space, you know? Yeah. Because sure. it's so wild. Because it's like way out of like what you are used to dealing with in in reality. Exactly. And like I think that that is I think that that's fine. I think we should be able to escape and have and and look at these films in in a fictional way and enjoy the drama that comes with it, you know? Exactly. And then, yeah. We do not kink shame here at Good Morning Nancy. <laughs> we really try not to, for sure. Um, I don't know. I just think that, like, I I do think that this film is not feminist in, in a way uh, in the modern world. Mm-hmm. Uh, for obviously the way it treats Edith and Lucille, but also in the way it treats women of color. Yes. That oh. was a, yeah, that was really upsetting for me to see the only black women in this film were maids. Yep. I was like, fuck you, Del Toro. What the fuck were you thinking? Like, I yeah. was like so angry after that. <laughs> I was yep. just like, what the fuck? Um, and it just begs the question, like, what is good representation, right? Like, I feel like I I feel like I shouldn't speak any more about it, really, because I want to hear what POC and preferably black horror fans think of this. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're listening, please hit us up on our social media and let us know. I want to hear your thoughts. But I think that it is rightly so you can argue that this film is not good at how it treats its women in the film. No, nope, nope, nope. No yeah. way. Um, but I just want to end this by saying no one is perfect. Women aren't inherently perfect as much as we wish to believe it. (laughs) Uh, and that includes the fictional women of Crimson Peak, you know, and of course the men in the film, the, the mansion, the real life creators, you know, Mm -hmm. um, Edith does make mistakes and she does fall for some things. And Lucille was abused and she is sick and she is, of you know and she is an also an abuser and i don't know i just think del toro definitely thought he was making a girl boss movie 
which <laughs> but in itself girl boss movies are not feminist either right as much as maybe women who were born in the 60s think they are because i think that these girl boss movies that come out now are made by people made by women who were born in the 60s who grew mm-hmm. up with not seeing a lot of good representation on film and so instead they just make these movies where all these women are like girl bosses yeah and they have no <laughs> problems and maybe their only flaw is that they're kind of snotty sometimes you know and it's just like yeah it's not that's that's also like a polar opposite where it's like not you know <laughs> like you know what yeah. i mean where it's like <laughs> yep. there's just women are humans women mm-hmm. are humans and that's all we want is for them to be written like humans. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No pedestals. No. No overabundant competition for men. Nothing like that. Right. And, you know, I think that's what Del Toro thought he was making. He thought he was making a girl boss movie. But maybe, really, if you look at it that way, maybe it's actually a good thing he didn't make yeah. that, that movie yep. in the end. But yep. I don't know. I'm seeing both sides of this argument here. But probably because I do like this movie, like you said. Like, it's kind mm-hmm. of hard for me to be like, I don't know. Like, But it's because I really do like this movie. And But I see the flaws. And I know you do, too. And I hope yep. everyone else does, too. Yes. So, agreed. It's okay to love trash. It's fine. You know what? Everybody <laughs> needs love. Everybody trash. Including trash. Oh, I'm like that possum. Don't touch my trash. Yes. (laughs) Live fast. Eat trash. (laughs) Well, thank you all so much for listening to this month's episode of Good Morning Nancy. If you love what we do, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard on this show without any help from researchers or editors. So let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. And if Patreon isn't your deal, and that's okay, you can also show us your support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. A link to our merch shop and our Patreon is in the show notes of this episode. So please, please, please check it out. Yes, and we know times are tough right now, so a free way to help the show is by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show, please. Yes, and don't forget, Black Lives Matter and Trans Lives Matter. So check out this episode's show notes and see how you can help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.